You know, like some of you, um, I pretty much grew up in the church. From the earliest days, I remember our family would get into the family car and we would drive to the church and it was a wonderful experience. That was our family, our circle of friendships. For me as a, a young person in, in my teenage years, those were the friends that helped keep me on track spiritually through my school and years, my teen years. And we had a great time together as friends, as many of you do. And that's why I'm so excited and thankful for the, the strong youth group and youth ministry that Calvary has. But occasionally, I have to admit, my friends and I at church would have a little too much fun together. We would often sit together like many of the teenagers do here. And sometimes we'd be on the front row. I appreciate you guys being up here on the front. But oftentimes, we went to the back row. And uh, we did things back there that probably weren't always acceptable, uh, especially when the service got a little long or the pastor got a little boring. Uh, we would start to pass notes or we would tell jokes. And sometimes we forgot where we were and that got to be a little disruptive. And people around us would look at us and kind of we were oblivious, didn't notice that at all. We we're just having a good time until a moment of silence came. And the pastor, as he was preaching, would just stop. And he would look back at the row where we were sitting. And eventually we realized, it's pretty quiet in here. And he would look at us. And if we didn't quite realize he was looking at us soon enough, he would say something like, uh, uh, to the teenagers in the back row there, if I can't get your attention, I'll have to ask some of your parents to come and sit by you and help me out. Well, that got our attention very quickly, I, I promise you. And we would sit up and get quiet again and tune back in or fall back asleep, whatever we were trying to do, but we didn't disrupt or cause any more commotion uh, to do that again. And I was reminded of those, that happened more than once, unfortunately. And I promise you, if you guys get bored and start to pass notes, I won't say anything to you. I'll just keep going. Um, but that happened on more than one occasion. And I was reminded of that because this week as I was studying and looking into the passage that we're going to be considering today, it reminded me that something similar to that happened here. It happens here. We're, we're looking in the book of Philippians. It's a little letter in the New Testament. If you have your Bible, I'll invite you to turn there. We'll be looking at it together in just a minute. Philippians is about halfway through the New Testament. You'll find some small letters, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians. And we'll be in chapter 4 in just a couple of minutes. But as we look at chapter 4, and we're calling this series unchained living, because that's what the Apostle Paul's doing. He's in prison, but he's living as though he was free. He wants the, the gospel to, get, to be advanced regardless of his circumstances. And Paul has been writing this letter to really his favorite church in Europe, at Philippi. And now as he begins to wind down the letter, he's in chapter 4, the letter's coming to an end, uh, he's starting to say goodbye to them. And he does so with this uh, beautiful affirmation of the Philippians and of his relationship with them. And so we find that in chapter 4, in the, in the opening verse, verse 1. He says, Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, 
Stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. Isn't that a, a touching statement of the close relationship that Paul has with these people? His favorite church. They, they serve together. It's the first church in Europe, and Paul calls them dear friends. But then Paul stops. It's like he abruptly interrupts himself. And he says, wait a minute. And he turns his attention to two women that are in the church who would be reading his letter or hearing it read. And we see that in verse 2. He stops himself and he says, oh, wait. I plead with Euodia and I plead with Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. So, so right in the middle of his closing words, giving them a farewell, Paul stops and he calls out these two women who for some reason are not getting along with one another. There's some conflict they haven't been able to resolve. And it's as though Paul is writing and he, he stops himself in mid-sentence. He says, wait a minute. There's an elephant in the room here. And I need to address it head on. I'm not going to play like it's not there. We need to talk about it. And so he stops mid-sentence to address these two women in the church. <laughs> Do you think that got their attention? I'll say it did. I thought it was bad enough when my pastor would call us teens out for cutting up and disrupting things in the church service. But at least he didn't use our names. <laughs> but here, Paul, now for the rest of history, lets us know the names of these two women who weren't getting along. Euodia, Syntyche. We know that they were, had some conflict between each other in the church and they hadn't resolved it. And so Paul stops in the middle of his, of his farewell and he says, I need to talk to you two ladies. You need to take care of this issue. And it's not that Paul is being cantankerous or unkind here or he's sticking his nose into something that really isn't his business. The point is that Paul recognized how serious this discord between these two women really is. Not the discord itself. We don't even know what the, the issue was. He doesn't tell us. What he's really concerned about is that the conflict that's unresolved between these two women can, pre can prevent them from standing firm in the Lord, what he just wrote. And it can rob the church of its power and destroy the testimony of the church in the community, in the neighborhood. You see, Paul recognized that the church can be attacked from two sources, outside and inside. And so in chapter 3 that we saw last week, the church was attacked from outside by a group of people called the Judaizers, some false teachers who were teaching legalism, essentially. We saw that previously. But they can, the church can also be attacked from inside, particularly through unresolved conflict, unaddressed discord that develops, if it's left by itself, it develops a dysfunctional pattern in the church of disregarding conflict. It damages the, the DNA of the church if conflict is not addressed and not resolved properly. 
I suspect in this room, maybe some of you have experienced that firsthand. You say, boy, I, I know that. I know how difficult and challenging that is. Maybe you were in a church and there was full of conflict. Always some issue. Always some disagreement. Always somebody fighting with someone else. Always some disagreement over some minor issue or major issue. And you finally got tired of it. And you said, I'm done. And you opted out of church. You said, who needs this? I, I have to struggle with, in my own life, maybe my own family, maybe at work. I have conflict in these different places. I don't need it in church. And when you kept finding it in church, you said, I've had enough. And so you, you left it. You opted out. And maybe you're just now, at this point of life, coming back and saying, maybe I should try again. I've heard about Calvary and what God's doing there. Maybe I'll just come and see if this church is better. You know, for every church, it's a reminder that when we experience conflict, it must be dealt with. It must be dealt with openly, straightforwardly, biblically. Otherwise, it can drive people away. It can diminish the impact of the church, its reputation, its welcoming spirit. And so if that's your story, maybe you've experienced that kind of conflict in the church and you've opted out and you're wondering, are all churches like that? Well, Paul tells us how not to be that kind of church here as we look at his words. Let me assure you, Paul says there's a better way for churches to deal with conflict than just to ignore it or hope it'll go away, or play like it's not there. You see, instead of just telling these women, now, stop quarreling. I want you to get along. And then he continues on. Now, he addresses that. He offers some guidance to the church and to us of how we can avoid that kind of unresolved conflict, how we can deal with it, how we can handle it and resolve it in a Christ-honoring way. And he says, really, the, the first way we do that is to recognize the context in which church conflict occurs. It's a broad context. He, it's like he's giving us the, the big picture so we can place conflict in the right context. And so Paul paints this big picture with three words, heaven, church, and the Lord. And he says, remember, in the end of chapter 3, he said that you are citizens of heaven. And you're eagerly awaiting a Savior to come from there. And here in chapter 4, verse 3, he tells them that their names are written in heaven in a book of life. And Paul's saying, essentially, don't forget that you have a heavenly home. This isn't your only home. That it's hard to maintain grudges, resentment, unresolved conflict here on earth in light of heaven. That someday we'll be standing before God. And God will say to us, how did you do there? Oh, well, let me tell you, we, we fought over little things. We fought over some question about worship or which Bible to use or things. And God said, really? In light of heaven, you fought over those kind of things at church and you couldn't resolve them. Paul says, keep that context in mind. But he also adds the church to this big picture context. In verse 3, Paul says this, yes, and he says, I ask you, my true companion, help these women, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers. Paul's saying, church, I want you to get involved in helping these women resolve this, especially church leadership. 
Now, I, I admit that probably doesn't make our deacons feel real excited to have to step in and get involved in somebody else's conflict. None of us want to be involved in somebody else's conflict, but we must because the conflict with these, between these two women was not just a private matter. It affected the whole church, its witness, and God's work in the church. And finally, Paul completes the big picture by bringing the Lord into it. Since if heaven and the church isn't enough to help you get this thing straight, the Lord is involved in this also. In verse 2, he said, I plead with Euodia and, and Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. In the Lord. You see, when you view it from that context, with the Lord in the mix and about heaven and the church, most of our disagreements can feel pretty insignificant, can't they? Somebody steps on your toes or says the wrong thing or says it in the wrong way or doesn't agree about this or that. Paul says, in light of the big picture, they're not really that significant after all. The church has fought over some really strange things throughout the years. You know, an example. You like quiet, contemplative music with a nice piano and a soft organ. I like big music. Blow the roof off and blow out the windows. and We can fight over that, can't we, for a long time. Churches have done that. You prefer deacons. I like elders. Another point we can fight over. You think communion, the Lord's Supper, is a sacrament. I see it as an ordinance. You're a convinced Calvinist. I'm thoroughly Arminian. We can fight over a lot of little things in the church. I'll tell you, we don't have to agree on everything in the church. Now, I know that strikes some a little questionable. You already are disagreeing with me. You already want we could fight over that. But we really don't have to agree on everything in the church. We have to agree on certain essentials, absolutely. Biblical essentials like the Trinity, like the gospel, like salvation. There's not a lot of room for disagreement on that. That's what the Bible teaches. Those are essentials. But the peripherals, the things on the outside, we can have different opinions about those. And we can still go out for lunch together. We can still hang out together. We can still pray together. We can still worship together. I think that a man by the name of Philip Melanchthon he was a German theologian, a reformer in the 16th century. I think he hit it right when he said this. He said, in essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. That's what Paul's saying here. In light of heaven, in light of the church, in light of the Lord, if you're going to have disagreements, make sure you have disagreements over the right things. The rest of the stuff, let it go. And so in every context, we, in every uh, disagreement, every conflict, we need to keep that perspective, that big picture in mind. And when we do that, we'll be able to move on to the next step that Paul gives us of how to deal with conflict in the church. We see that in verse 4. He goes on, he says, Rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again. Rejoice. 
Here Paul returns to his, one of his favorite themes in this short letter of Philippians. Some 15 times he talks about joy or rejoicing. He, he loves to that. And he's saying when we put our context or our, our conflicts in the context of the Lord, the church, and the heaven, it will enable us to resolve them so we can get back to joyfully living in the Lord. And he says these, to these women, Euodia and Syntyche, don't let your conflict steal the joy of the Lord from you. Get it resolved. And then Paul says the way you do that in verse 5, he says, let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Now that word translated gentleness, it's an interesting, it's kind of a challenging word really. Uh, how to translate it. The one English word gentleness doesn't quite capture the, the meaning of the Greek word. It, it means more than that. It, it carries with it the idea of a, a sweet reasonableness in our relationships. It's a, a gracious spirit that comes from authentic humility of the heart. Paul calls it sweet reasonableness. Do you see how that uh, character quality would help resolve conflict? Yeah, me too. And that's exactly what Paul has in mind here. Because he goes on to say, let your sweet reasonableness be known to all. Let it be seen. Let it be experienced. Let it be perceived that you have a gracious spirit about you. I'll tell you, if we had that uh, uh, manifest among us consistently, don't you think that would take care of maybe 80% of the conflict we experience with each other? A sweet reasonableness. Don't you think it would take care of the differences over some peripheral areas of doctrine or some lifestyle issues? Don't you think in the family or in marriage, sweet reasonableness would resolve most conflicts? Certainly, sweet reasonableness would help us deal with and resolve most differences in the church. So, we've got 80% of our conflicts right there are resolved with a sweet reasonableness. Well, what do you do with the other 20% that aren't resolved with that? I'm glad you're asked. Because we all experience those. And Paul gives us help with that in verse 6. He says, don't be anxious about anything. But in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. Paul says, if you've got 20% of conflicts still left over, he says, you need to, and you need to vent about something to someone, even though you've been sweetly reasonable and it hasn't taken care of it, Paul says, here, vent to God, because he can handle it. Bring those requests to him. And not just if it's a conflict, but he says, bring whatever's on your heart to him. Maybe it's a burden, maybe it's a question, maybe it's a struggle, maybe it's something you're tired of carrying, maybe whatever it is in your life, he says, bring it to him. And look what will happen. Verse 7, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Is that an awesome problem, uh, promise or what? Sign me up for that exchange. It's like he's saying, listen, 
Let God know your problems so he can give you his peace. Paul's saying when you're locked in conflict with someone over something and your sweet reasonableness can't solve it, then bring it to God in prayer and just leave it with him. And he'll take it from you and he'll give you his peace. No questions asked. No fine, no small print. And so, say if there's an issue at home between you and your spouse, and you haven't been able to resolve it, even with sweet reasonableness, or there's a conflict in a relationship with a friend, it's tearing you apart inside, or there's a problem at work that's eating you, or there's an issue at school with a buddy, a friend, and you just can't get through it, or there's an issue that's dividing you at church, a resentment that's there, and you just can't get over it. Paul says, well, remain gracious and sweetly reasonable and then bring it to God and let him take it and give you his peace. I love that. I need that. I'll take that any day of the week. It works, he says. And he says, then when your heart and your mind are at peace and filled with God's grace, he says, then you can turn your focus to the things that will preserve that peace. And we find those in verse 8 as he continues. He says, finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. I love that verse. I remember memorizing it when I was a teenager. It reminds me of the virtues that I need to fill my minds with. And I don't care whether you're a teenager or in your 20s, 30s, or what age of life you're at. That's a good list, a place to start, isn't it? To fill our minds with those kinds of things. Uh, things that, a good list, that are true, noble, right, pure, lovely, admirable, excellent, praiseworthy. He's saying whatever is morally and spiritually excellent, center your focus, your mind, your thoughts on those things. And that doesn't happen automatically. I find if a, a thought that's impure comes to my mind, I have to capture it and say, wait a minute, that doesn't belong here. I want to come back to this list of things and put my mind on those. It's critical. Do you think if Euodia and Syntyche had been doing that, that their differences really would have just melted away? Would have been resolved? They would have sat down and said, listen, let's put this to rest once and for all. If we would do a little more venting to God rather than about one another, exercising a little more sweet reasonableness in our relationships, the implication is we'd have a lot more peace in our hearts, in our relationships, in our church. And that way of life is more than just a positive mental attitude. It can be lived and practiced. It can be imitated. You don't just ponder it. Paul says you practice it. And to help you practice it, you, you identify with someone who is doing it. 
you look at their life and you say, I want to copy that in my life. That's what he said in verse 9. He says, whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice and the God of peace will be with you. You know, I'll tell you, I'm thankful, as I know you are, that uh, Calvary Church has not endured a lot of deep conflict over the years. God's protected the church from that, largely because the church has learned to follow this process, not to leave a conflict unresolved. But we need to do that in our, all of our relationships. And so you want to teach your kids or your students that at school, how to resolve conflict with each other? Paul says, well, let them see you do it and do it right. You want to teach your kids to be pure in their thoughts and honest in their prayers with their problems, bringing them to God? Then let them hear you do that in your prayer. You want your friends to know how to deal with each other's shortcomings, just being human? Then show them how to do that. By the way, you do that. He says, then the peace of God will be imparted to your heart, to your home, and to your church. That's the truth Paul's leaving with us. And that's why he stops in mid-sentence and says, ladies, I need to talk to you. Take care of this issue. Because it's damaging the church. It's not honoring the Lord and it's stealing your joy in the Lord. And the truth that Paul delivers to them is that when the peace of God guards our hearts, we'll rejoice in the God of peace. If you've ever been to Israel, you probably visited the Church of the Nativity. It's in Jerusalem. It's the church that's over the site where Jesus was born. And there's a little story about that church that should have remained little. Unfortunately, it didn't. It seems that back in the 19th century, the church site was shared by the Roman Catholic Church and by the Greek Orthodox Church. One day, Catholics decided they wanted to take the Orthodox star off the top of the church and put their own star up on the church. Well, the Greek Orthodox didn't like that. Those folks said, no, you can't remove our star and put yours up there. Well, the Greek Orthodox group, church, was supported by Russia, of course. Uh, Roman Catholic Church at that time was, in that was, conflict was supported by France. But the Ottoman Empire of Turkey actually controlled Palestine at that time, and so Turkey sided with the Roman Catholic Church. Well, that prompted Russia, among other things, to declare war on Turkey. So France, followed by England, allied themselves with Turkey. You're following all this? Of course not. It's crazy. But they all went to war over that issue. And history calls that the Crimean War. It really happened. You can read about it. Between 1853 and 1856. And by the end of the war... The star on the church was no longer there. And to this very day, there's no star on the top of the church. It's a pretty ugly story, isn't it? About what conflict can do 
in the church. When it goes unresolved and not addressed, not settled. And that's why Paul stopped in the middle of saying goodbye and said we need to deal with this issue. The church needs to learn how to resolve conflict. How to let it go. How to end resentment and bitterness. The lesson that Paul says we must learn in our lives and in our church and in all of our relationships is that when the peace of God guards our hearts, we'll rejoice in the God of peace. So God, we thank you that you understand our lives and our relationships. You understand that sometimes we, we get in conflict with each other. We get sideways with each other. We step on each other's toes. We hurt one another in our words, or our thoughts. And God, thank you that you've given us a way to resolve that, a way out of it, a way to restore our peace and to renew our, our joy in the Lord. God, I pray that here at Calvary that we might be diligent in that because in real life, those things happen. Lord, I pray that for those maybe even here today who said, They've been hurt and burned by that in their church experience in the past. God, would you give them hope? Would you restore their joy in you as they see that churches and people, followers of Jesus, can resolve those issues? And we can move, move forward with a bright witness to our community, with the joy of the Lord in our services, with the hope of the gospel that makes a difference in our lives and in our witness, we pray. Thank you for that hope you've given to us and that instruction. In Jesus' name, amen.